Uh, we're going to finish up the book of Matthew today. We started it 14 months ago. Remember that we are um, uh, we're studying Matthew so we can be better followers of Jesus. We don't want to just believe the right things about Jesus. We want to follow his teachings, uh, and that's what it's all about. So we're going to talk about the burial and the resurrection of Jesus today. Um, the likeliness, or, uh, the historical likeliness of the story, that's the first part. Um, and then we're going to talk about our responsibility to identify, or God's invitation that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the second part, uh, identifying with it on a, in a personal way. And then finally we're going to talk about what we just sang about God's commission, how Jesus told them that he was sending them out to do something with this. So, if you want to follow along, and I really hope you will, please grab a green Bible or a smartphone and turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you get a green Bible, it's on page 698, uh, Matthew 28, or I'm sorry, 27, and we're going to start at verse 57. <coughs> so Jesus has been taken down off the cross. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, who was like the uh, Roman governor figure over Jerusalem at the time, uh, he asked for Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered that the body be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So real quick, it's important for Matthew that the readers know, number one, that this is a new tomb. Here's why that's important. Uh, most Roman criminals would be taken off uh, the cross and thrown into a ditch, into a common grave, um, and just buried uh, with a bunch of other convicts who died on the cross together. Uh, but Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus was separated out. This all has to do with the, uh, with the story of the resurrection and different theories and things that would have been circulating in the Jewish crowd by the time Matthew writes his gospel. He also wants to know that he's buried in a new tomb, and this is significant because in a mausoleum-style tomb, it was typically a family tomb where there might be four, five, six, seven, eight, nine bodies already there. And you can see how in a resurrection account, you could begin to wonder, well, maybe they got confused as to how many people were in there, and they thought he was over there, he's really over there, and that place was empty. Uh, when there's only one person in the tomb, which wouldn't have been all that common, um, when that person's not there, that's different than just getting confused about that. He also wants people to know there were witnesses. So there's Joseph, because it's his tomb. And then there's Mary Magdalene and another Mary that are all there when Jesus is placed in the tomb. So uh, you could be reasonably certain that three people aren't going to get confused as to where this tomb is and go to the wrong place. They knew where the tomb is. There were witnesses. Uh, Jesus was the only one in the tomb, and Matthew wants his readers to know that. Okay, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver, there's a called Jesus the, the liar, uh, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception uh, will be worse than the first. So they're afraid the disciples are going to come and steal the body and fake the resurrection. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting guard. 
this pretty well secured the tomb because Roman guards, uh, at the penalty of execution, they weren't going to fall asleep. And they weren't going to be screwing around. They, they were going to be focused on their task to guard the tomb. This was official Roman business now. And it's important for Matthew that all of his readers know um, that, that the tomb was secured by Rome itself. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary uh, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I've told you. So um, Galilee is up in the north by Lebanon of Israel. uh, And Jerusalem, where this is all happening, is in the southern portion. It's about the distance from here to Columbus. And what the angel says is, leave Jerusalem, go back to Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus spent all his time with his disciples. That's where he basically based his ministry out of. And and they're supposed to go back home, essentially. And they're told they're going to see Jesus. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. So the risen Jesus meets these ladies. He says, greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I'm going to skip the guard's report and go down to 16 just for time's sake. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. (coughs) I want to talk for a minute about literary criticism. Um, Now, you can't prove any of this, right? I mean, there's no way to prove that any of this actually happened, but the implications are a big deal. If Jesus rose from the grave, if he really did rise from the grave and validate everything that he claims... Uh, there are a lot of life implications to that. I think you could agree. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, and he wasn't who he said he was, I want to know so I can do something better with my life. Um, And I mean that. I mean, I want to know, does this stuff pass the smell test or not? Because if it's not true, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. Um, There are... Literary criticism is what you apply to text uh, written a long period of time ago to try to establish the historical likeliness of something. We can't prove that Napoleon Bonaparte existed or Aristotle or Plato wrote the the Republic or anything like that. You look at the text and you try to find clues that either point to uh, reliability or likeliness or that point to something that was unlikely. And there are two major clues in here that, that those who engage in literary criticism are, are, are struck by. Number one, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go out of their way to talk about the women's involvement in this, even to the point where they are listing, and Matthew's listing to a Jewish crowd, that the first group of people that Jesus appeared to were women. 
Now keep in mind that 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 one of the one of the um, one of the pieces of, of literary criticism is you're looking for oddities, little quirks in the story that are strange, but not necessarily unlikely. Little details that you probably wouldn't tell unless you were going for the truth. And the fact that Jesus appears to women is very significant because this is a day and time when women were little more than possessions and in some cases less than possessions. They had no rights, they had no voice, they had no say. This is also a Jewish crowd where, um, where lists matter and hierarchy matters. And every detail of the story has some greater symbolic meaning. So, all of this to say, for a man to write that Jesus appeared first to women is significant. And for a disciple, somebody who had the title as one of the twelve, to say that Jesus first appeared to a non-twelve woman, that's a big deal. And it's probably not something that you would go around saying in a Jewish society unless it happened because it lessens your importance in the story. So this is a pretty politically charged environment we're in, right? If your phone's been on the hook at all lately, you know that. There are Republicans, there are Democrats, and we are split right down the middle, pretty polarized. And spin is everywhere. And you know what you probably wouldn't have is a Republican saying, Jesus appeared first to the Democrats, right? Unless they throw in something like, because they need Jesus most, which a Republican might do. Democrats would do the same for Republicans. I'm not out, you know, bashing anybody. It's just, you don't give that kind of credit unless you're really going for accuracy. And in the same way, men writing to a Jewish society are not going to put women in that kind of light where Jesus appeared first to them. They're just not. Now, that doesn't prove anything. It's just if you're going for what's historically likely, this is an oddity in the story that you typically wouldn't tell unless you are really going for truth. So a literary critic is going to be, at least they're going to take that into consideration and say, This seems to point to the historical reliability of the account. The second piece is that Matthew is willing to admit that some doubted. It says that Jesus appeared to them in a mountain in Galilee, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's not like there's a vendetta against any one disciple here. He doesn't say, but Thomas doubted. And you can tell that the disciples are still swayed by vendetta when they mention Judas because it per- whenever they mention Judas, they get like this little tick. Traitor. It's like they, they have to say, traitor. They're not going after any one person here. They're just saying there were chinks in the armor. Some people doubted. And it's really unlikely that you're making up a story and you include that kind of chink in the armor. So both of those pieces go a long way, not to prove, but to point to the historical likeliness of the account of the resurrection. And I want you guys to just know that because I know that, that, there, that, that some of you, and, 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 and God bless you, I appreciate you, are skeptical in nature, and I get it. 
And so I, I just want you guys to know that, that there are some, that it's the smell test, and, and it passes the smell test in terms of, of literary criticism. All right, let's move on, and, and, and I'm going to walk you through the, please turn, if you're following along, to Romans chapter 6. Matthew and the other writers of the Gospels go out of their way to detail the three pieces to the account, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Uh, and you, we, we would understand the death and the resurrection, but they also go out of their way to point to the burial. Uh, and, and, and burial is very significant in, in, uh, in Jewish ritual and in Christian ritual, Judeo-Christian ritual, because it represents a kind of finality. And when you think about it, if you've ever lost someone you love, uh, especially if it was sudden, you maybe sit and, and wonder, you know, deep down you're expecting to get the phone call or the text or the car's going to come in the driveway. Uh, there, there's a kind of denial uh, that exists un, un, until the funeral and the burial. And that's when, you know, when the bell is tolling and, and your graveside and you know it's done. There, there's a finality there. This is important because there's the death of Jesus. There's the finality of the burial. It's done. And then there's the breaking through of the finality with the resurrection. And Paul tells us in Scripture, as well as other authors, that it's God's intention that we as followers of Jesus not only understand that that happened back then, but that somehow we participate in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's not enough just to believe it. God wants us to somehow participate with it. So Romans 6, (coughs) verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there's the death. We were therefore buried with him. There's the burial. We died with him. We were buried with him. And just that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you see, it's we died with him, we were buried with him, and we are raised with him. And God wants us to identify with that. That's one of the reasons baptism is so important. It's because we see that action of you're up in the water. You're now down under the water. You're not breathing. How can you more identify with death than to lose the ability to breathe? But then you're brought up, washed, and in newness. And so baptism, we see that symbolic identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Let me continue. Um, For if we've been united with them like this in in his death, we will certainly be united uh, with him in the resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now let me walk through what this means and why it's significant. Jesus submitted himself to death. He willingly died. And when he did that, the Bible says that all sin, past, present, and future, was paid for and put to death on the cross. He was then buried 
So the submission's done, and now the life is done. And then he was raised, destroying death, bringing newness, bringing forgiveness, bringing validation. Um, And what Scripture says is that we have to make the choice. And we are invited to join in with that as well. So that we submit to death. Um, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He also says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. So there's a point when it looks like this. Uh, We're living our life, generally a good person, uh, not an axe murderer. Um, We throw some toys in the Toys for Tots bin at Christmas. We help our neighbors out. We love our children. We want the best for our family. We work hard. We're honest most of the time. We all have our skeletons in our closets. Some are greater than others, and we all have those things that weigh us down. But there's something missing, uh, and we have the baggage and the weight uh, that we want to get rid of, and so we explore religion, and we land on Jesus. And we see someone who paid the price for our sins, and we put our faith in that. But what God says, go beyond putting your faith in that and allow yourself to be crucified with him, meaning announce yourself, your old self, as dead. And so the self-centeredness, the things that you used to live for, the direction, your hopes, your dreams, your goals, dead. Your old self, dead. Now with that, you get, first of all, the admission and the surrender that I'm not going to live my way of life anymore. But you also get the blessing of knowing that as far as God's concerned, it's dead and done. So yeah, you don't get your hopes and dreams anymore. Now you get God's hopes and dreams for your life, which are always better anyway. But you also don't have the burden of the weight that kept you down. And then he says, identify with the burial. And that's something that seems to be a part of baptism. Identify with the burial and realize that not only did you just submit to death, it's done. That old self that you were just ain't going to be anymore. At graveside, we realize that that person that we knew, it's done. And at our Christian graveside, at our burial, we're realizing that our old self, is done, and God invites us to say it's done, so stop worrying about it. But then we're also invited to experience the resurrection um, and realize that we live a new life now, a forgiven life, a cleansed life, and it is new in every sense of the word. Paul says, Your old self is gone, and your new life is begun. And God wants us to identify on a personal level with the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And for me, it's an exercise that I have to go through regularly. Because we get to dark places where we we realize, man, my thoughts are way out of line with this new life that Jesus called me to. And I have to remind myself, Alex, you died. The Alex Poindexter that did what he wanted in this situation died. And he was buried. And you're dead to that. You have to live in that newness of life. But I can also say that stuff I did yesterday or that stuff I did last week, it's done. It's dead. It's gone. I have the freedom of living the kind of new forgiven life that Jesus calls us to. Now, let me move on. 
So we have to identify with that. I mean, you have to go beyond just believing and truly identify. And baptism is a great way to start in that identification process if you haven't done that. They meet up with Jesus in Galilee, and he gives them the, one of the best so what's that I've ever read. It says that uh, when, they, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, no more cross, no more crucifixion, no more whipping, uh, no more beatings, no more mocking, no more slapping, no more spitting, no more humiliation and harassment, no more submission. Jesus says, I am now the most powerful being in the universe. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And I am with you always to the consummation of the age. Till God has fulfilled all authority has been given to me, I'm the most powerful being in the universe, and I'm with you until God has fulfilled everything for you. But in between there, we basically get the meaning of life. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. And so God wants you to be at the place where you've identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you're living on your own right now, just trying to figure things out, God's main thing for you is to get to the point where you identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He wants that for you and your life. And he wants you to obey the teachings of Jesus, which are all built around two things, love God, love people. He doesn't want you to just you know, go and teach them the right stuff about me. It's go and teach them to be obedient to everything I've commanded, which ultimately has to do with loving God and loving people. So your first thing in life is to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection and learn the teachings of Jesus to live his lifestyle. But the second thing then is the command to go. Jesus says go. And it's really translated while you're going. While you're going, make disciples. So that's your second charge. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have to do this. We don't have a choice. We're not being followers of Jesus if we're not. We're not following his teaching if we're not making disciples. Now that's intimidating, right? Because we think about making disciples and you often think about like you need to bullhorn and some tracks and, and, or you need to know um, apologetics and, and deep truths of the Bible and things like that. But that's not really what making disciples is about. Making disciples is about reproducing in other people what God has already done in your life. If you can tell somebody how to get to your favorite restaurant and order what you love, you can tell somebody what God has done in your life. You don't have to explain it. You just have to say what works for you. So I'm going to go back to Cozumel, um, the source of all good illustrations. Um, I go to Cozumel and I get two things. I get a fire burrito or I get Camarones Diabla, which is, which is Spanish for spicy overcooked shrimp. And, and, and I can get you there. And that's all I need to do is I need to be able to say, you go up Pearl Road and you make a right into the parking lot before Grafton and you order Camarones Diabla. What if somebody asked me, how do you make the shrimp? How do you make the sauce? Well, I don't know. But I don't need to know. All I'm doing is I'm getting them there and telling them how to order it for themselves. And in the same way, I think one of the things that keeps us from engaging in spiritual conversations is because we're afraid. What if they ask a question and I don't know the answer to it? What if they ask how many people wrote the Bible? Or what year was it composed? And I don't know. 
than you say. I don't know. But my life is better because I read it. I mean, that, that's really all discipleship is, is you're working on your next thing in your walk with God. And you're learning it and you're growing. And then as you enter in conversations of life, stuff comes up. And you'll see those moments. Uh, you, don't, you don't even really have to fight for them. They just, if you engage in real life and are willing to say, here's what works for me, those moments will come up on their own. A couple weeks ago, I was um, standing in my garage and, and um, uh, watching my neighbors blow out my sprinkler system for me with a compressor. And I don't know how to do anything, um, but my neighbors do. And, and so I'm literally just standing there looking at the compressor while they're messing around with it. And, and one of my neighbors who knows I'm a pastor said, you ever, um, you ever work with any kids that are struggling with drugs? And that was the moment. And I didn't have to fight for it. He invited me in to his world. And, and I didn't have to list a, well, the first thing you need to do is, is make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. It wasn't, I didn't have to jump. I could just take him where he was and engage. And that's really all that God calls us to do is be intentional. It's as you go, as you live. Realize you're sent. You're sent to your job. You're sent to your play group. You're sent to your t-ball team, to your neighborhood. And be aware. Pray for opportunities and go with what you know. All you're really doing is bearing witness to what works in your world. Let me close with this. All right. There's an element of this that I love because I feel like what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us to a radical lifestyle that he knows is bigger than we can handle. Like that, like that uh, roller coaster ride that you really want to ride and that's really great but that's really scary at the same time. And he says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, so go! Run it! And we approach it like, we would really like to live out those principles and be amazed to see God that active in our life. And that, but, but man, uh. a few weeks ago, Felix Baumgartner became the first human being to break the sound barrier by falling. He stood on a platform and jumped and fell at 833 miles an hour. Take a look.
No one will ever say, Felix, you're a chicken. <laughs> Can you imagine there's that scene of him standing on that platform looking down and seeing the curvature of the earth? And then there was that moment when he just took the plunge and fell at 833 miles an hour. And, and that's something where if you knew you couldn't fail, can you, can you imagine how fun that would be? If you knew that like your chute would open and you can hit the ground like a feather and all that. But, but m- only one person has ever had the guts to give it a whirl. Um, Jesus says, here's my life. It's bringing heaven to earth. Therefore, go. And, and we tend to approach his principles thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what that would be like. But I mean, think about forgiveness. Jesus says, I want you to live a life of complete forgiveness. I want you to accept forgiveness in its entirety. And I want you to give forgiveness in its entirety. And that would be an incredible kind of life, but there's something, there's a security that comes from our baggage. This past spring, um, a, a newer person at Polaris said, I'm listening to these teachings of Jesus and Matthew, and I'm going to, um, fly my son in from overseas, and we're going to reconcile for the first time in a decade. And he did it. And, and he has a relationship with his son now. And, and that's the kind of radical forgiveness and the kind of things that Jesus calls us to. And I'm sure it was terrifying to have a son that you've been estranged with for you know a decade flying over, knowing that's coming, knowing he's walking through the airport, knowing you're going to meet him, and you haven't had any kind of a relationship, and you're about to extend blanket forgiveness for I don't know what, but he did it. He took that step off the platform, and, and he's better for it. Um, I think about that kind of forgiveness, and that's, that's part of what God calls us to, and that's an amazing journey when we actually live it out. Most of us don't. Most of us don't embrace forgiveness like that. I think about the kind of life to life that God wants uh, for us and, and the kind of impact that we could have if we would engage. Uh, you know, Crestview Elementary approached us about, about mentoring children who are going through um, broken home situations. And six of you have stepped into those roles, and that's getting ready to roll. And after a year's time of pouring into those kids' lives, that, that, if you lived a lifetime of that kind of a commitment for life to life, that's all scary stuff. But you guys are doing it. And, and, and that represents that kind of just all-in experience that Jesus is talking about when he says, when he says therefore go. Uh, the kind of generosity Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's a radical teaching. And, and he doesn't give boundaries. He doesn't say, but, but keep this, you know, keep your 401k right here because you never know what could happen next year. That, that's not the kind of approach he advocates for. I don't think he's necessarily against it, but he just says, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. Don't worry about your stuff. God will supply that. Can you imagine Full tilt, running that lifestyle. But I can tell you that on your deathbed, when none of that stuff that you've saved up matters anyway, and you knew that you impacted thousands and thousands of lives, that's the kind of jump off the platform that Jesus says is available if we'll do it. 
but not many people do. I haven't. But it's there. Jesus says, therefore, go. And there are all sorts of things that he calls us to in his radical lifestyle. And I hope with the teachings of Jesus that are available to be followed, on my last day, I will look back and say, I jumped off the platform and I experienced it all. And I hope you will. And I hope that as a church, we will. I'm going to make an executive decision and I'll just, um, if you could stand, we'll just close in prayer. Father, thank you for your teachings. Thank you for laying it out for us. Thank you for um, painting a life that, that is dangerous, that's scary, uh, that's, that's high octane, um, inviting us to free fall in an environment where you are with us as the most powerful being in the universe. We're invited to jump off and go as fast and as hard as we want. And promise the safety of an eternity. Of a life that starts now and never ends. Of a resurrection to newness of life that starts now. But even after we physically die, the promise of another resurrection. The promise of eternal life with you. God, move our hearts to jump off that platform and experience the life that you have.